Welcome, everyone. Please be seated. My name is Mark Altrogi. I'm one of the pastors here at Saving Grace. Thank you for coming tonight. This is so great to see the body of Christ gathered together as one to glorify Jesus. So thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. So though we are meeting in this building, this service belongs to every church in Indiana that believes in Jesus and preaches the good news of all that God has done to redeem us through His Son. So I'd like to read a scripture that tells why we are meeting together. John, from the book of John 17. And uh, we will start uh, at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So we are gathering tonight to glorify God and to bring pleasure to God and that Jesus will see His prayer that they may all be one, that he may get to look down and see that prayer being fulfilled in a small way in this town. And that will bring him pleasure. So we are meeting to express that in Jesus we are all one. That There is one church in Indiana. And Jesus said that as we are one, it will reflect the unity of the Father in Jesus. And the world will know and believe that the Father sent Jesus and that the Father loves us even as He loved Jesus. So let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this night. And we thank You, Lord. We are going to be boasting in the cross. We are going to be delighting in what You have done for us, Jesus and the barriers You broke for us. And so, Lord, we pray that tonight You would be glorified. We pray that You would be honored, that You would be filled with pleasure at seeing Your people gathered as one, delighting in what You've done for us, Jesus. We thank You for saving us. We thank You for enduring the wrath of the Father on the cross to pay for our sins. And we just want you to be glorified tonight in everything we do and say. Lord, we also pray that you would build up your church tonight. And we pray that you would save. We pray that you would grant saving faith to anyone here who does not yet know you, Lord. That they would believe in you. That numbers of people would believe in you tonight, Jesus, and be saved. We ask you to do this for your glory. We ask you to just really anoint the speakers tonight. And Jesus, we ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, tonight's theme is seven broken barriers. Seven barriers to God that Jesus broke on the cross. And we have seven pastors, and they are going to speak seven minutes each. And I told them tonight that we have a trap door right here that... At seven minutes and five seconds, we'll open up. Um, We have David Hansen from Beulah Baptist Church. We have Timothy Metcalf from Lord Jesus Christ Assembly. Scott Pfeiffer from Divine Destiny Ministries. Melvin Jenkins from Victory Christian Assembly. Bob Mundorf from Saving Grace. Scott Rising from Harvest Community Church. And Judah Thomas from Word of Grace Fellowship. So... At this time, let's welcome David Hansen.
God bless y'all. How y'all feeling tonight? Okay, I was here last year and had a great time. I would have been back again, even if I wasn't called upon to speak. And I must admit, I had some reservations being the lead-off batter, as it were, for this occasion, because I usually like to sit there and work out my stage uh, jitters. Believe it or not, I'm very bashful and very shy. But I think I'm also in a win-win situation because I'm followed by six very exceptional speakers. And so I'm in a very good position because... One thing I've learned that if there's one thing that makes a preacher want to preach, it's two kinds of preachers, a good one and a bad one. So if I'm bad tonight, that'll inspire the rest of them to be good. And if I'm good tonight, that'll inspire everybody else to be better. (laughs) Amen. So I'm the lead-off batter tonight, and by the grace of God, I hope to get on base. And so I want to say to speaker number seven, don't leave me stranded. Bring me home. Amen. The topic I was chosen uh, to speak on was the barrier of hopelessness. Amen. The barrier of hopelessness. And what is hopelessness? And I tried to resist going, you know, cheating and going to Webster's Dictionary. And so as I, as I was meditating on this, some things came out of my spirit. And I wrote them down. And so you have to forgive me because I read a lot. I'm a better reader than I'm a preacher. So... But uh, hopelessness, and this is what came to me, is that feeling that there's no good outcome for my life or future. And what is bad about that is that hopelessness produces toxic emotions. And toxic emotions can in turn produce self-destructive behavior or even mass-destructive actions. And just here recently in the news, we heard about over in Germany in that plane that was commandeered by that co-pilot, and he had some severe issues, some severe depression is coming out, and how he could just take that plane down and destroy that plane and himself and those hundreds of lives with him. And amen. And it's nothing more. And I'm sure there was some, a lot of things going on with him. But someone say he was off his meds or maybe he was schizophrenic, whatever. But I believe the root of it is hopelessness. Amen. And we know hopelessness is being without hope or being bankrupt when it comes to hope. Amen. And uh, someone says, well, what does hope really mean? Well, hope has got to be important because Paul says now abide of these three things, faith, hope and charity. And of course, the most important is charity or love, but we really don't talk about hope a whole lot. We talk about faith, and faith is really exciting. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And it just occurred to me that also hope comes from that same place. Hope comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, and more specifically, hearing by the Word of Christ. Amen. And Paul says in the book of Ephesians, uh, if I could just read it, with my glasses. Two eleven says, Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, you were who were called uncircumcision by what is called a circumcision made in the flesh of hands. At that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the co- from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, someone say, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? Amen. And so now what is hope? Amen. Hope is, amen, not according to how the world uses, because when the world says, I, I'm, I'm hoping, it's basically, it's like a fanciful wish. Uh, It's a desire of the heart, or maybe it's even a desperate desire of the heart, but there's no certainty that is going to be met. Amen. It's something that you want to see, but you don't have no guarantee. You don't have no certainty. I'll give you an example. Amen. You're a student. You have a major exam coming the next day, and you know you did not put the time in it to study. And so you're hoping that you may pass that. You're hoping for some good results but you don't have no guarantee that your hope is going to be met. But that's the way the world uses it. Uh, 
Uh, are you going to are you going to uh, get paid? Uh, I hope so. Uh, uh, you, uh, the doctor told you you have cancer. Do you believe that God's going to make you well? Well, I hope so. But the way the world uses it, there's no guarantee. There's no certainty. But when God says hope, when the Bible says hope, it's an earnest expectation of something good coming my way. Amen. Even in the midst of bleak situations, even in the midst of things that look negative, I have something that gives me something to look forward today. And I know it's going to happen. So how do we get a hold of that hope? Well, are you in Christ? Are you a Christian? If you have Christ in you, you have hope in you because Christ is the hope of glory who lives in you. And I'm almost out of time here. When, when, when we accepted Jesus Christ, amen, everything that we needed to make us victorious was in Christ Jesus. So in other words, you need a good word. It's in Christ. You need a future. I don't care if the boyfriend dropped you. Don't take your life. Glory be to God. There's something better coming. I don't care if you lost your job, amen. You may cry about it for a little bit, but don't take your life. Don't blow your wife away. Don't kill your children because something better is coming if you are in Christ Jesus. And finally, finally, oh, there's so much on this, but finally, Romans chapter 15, and the Lord just uh, brought this to my attention, and I want to read it so I don't misquote it. 15.4 says, and whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And so if you're a Christian and you're feeling hopeless, that's one thing. But know this, there's a difference between feeling hopeless and being hopeless. If you're a Christian, you might feel hopeless about some challenges or some difficulties, but you're not hopeless Because Christ on the inside is the hope of glory. And the Bible says that hope that is seen, amen, is not seen for if we can see it, then why do we have to hope for it? But if we hope for it, then the Holy Spirit gives us the patience to wait for it. And while we're waiting for it, we're not depressed about our immediate circumstances, but I can smile if I have hope. Amen, amen. There's no such thing as bad luck. Glory be to God, if I have hope. I'm blessed, glory be to God, where I am. I'm blessed today, I'm blessed tomorrow, nothing but good things coming my way. And, oh, can I have just 30 seconds? How did Christ eliminate that? Well, if you think that God hates you, if you think that God is your enemy, if you think that God is against you, what hope do you have? But The thing that made us offensive to God, all of our sins, all of our iniquities, all of our transgressions, God took those things and put them on the cross of Jesus Christ. So God ain't mad at you anymore. God ain't got no grudge against you. His righteousness is on our side. Ain't that good news? Don't that make you want to shout glory? And my seven minutes is over. I'm done. God bless you. Be blessed. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My topic as far as one of the barriers that the Lord Jesus Christ removed in his death is law righteousness. If you would turn in your copy of the scriptures please to Romans chapter 10. Was given two uh, verses to deal with this from, and I see that the other one is printed. I'm going to be going from Romans chapter 10, though. Uh, Begin with me at verse 3. For Christ is an end of law for righteousness to everyone believing. For Moses is writing the righteousness from the law. The person having done them will live in them. Note that this doesn't say that the Lord Jesus Christ is the end of the law. It says that he is the end of the law for righteousness. That means that at one time, 
law must have been the way to go to get righteousness. But since the Lord Jesus Christ has come, that's over. Law isn't the way that we have righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone believing. And then verse 5 starts with for, that is uh, explaining what has just come before it. Moses is writing the righteousness from the law. The person having done them will live in them. So law righteousness deals with performance. Law righteousness deals with you doing what was written in it. Verse 6, But the righteousness from belief, that is the righteousness that we get as a result of believing, is saying this, You may not say in your heart, not like you might not say, but you're not allowed to say. You may not say this in your heart. Who will ascend into the heaven? Paul is alluding to a verse here in Deuteronomy, but he's saying the righteousness of belief says, don't worry about how God came incarnate. Don't worry about having to understand the inhumanation of Christ Jesus. But we just believe that Jesus Christ is God who descended from heaven via an incarnation. You may not say in your heart, who will ascend into the heaven? And Paul's parenthetical statement shows you that how I explained that was how he meant it. That is, to bring Christ down. So the righteousness of belief believes that Jesus is God who came from heaven. Or... Who will descend into the depthless place? And then Paul's explanation of what he means again. That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. That is, the righteousness of belief doesn't try to figure out resurrection. It just says, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a miracle. That's all we need to know. It doesn't think about, you know, how did that image get on the shroud of Turin? And uh, is that really the shroud of Jesus? Maybe radiation came out of him when he was raised from the dead. It It doesn't think about how. It just counts on the fact of the gospel that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Verse 8 says, but what is it saying? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. And then Paul's explanation. That is, the word of the belief which we are proclaiming. That Here's the word of belief. That is the message that is to be believed so that we have salvation. That if you should confess with your mouth, there's the mouth connection, the Lord Jesus. That is, if you can hook the word Lord, a title for deity, with the name of of his humanity, Jesus. If you call this man God and believe in your heart, the heart connection, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For in the heart it is being believed with reference to righteousness, but with the mouth it is being confessed with reference to salvation. Now, What's that have to do with the death of Christ? You're talking about incarnation. You're talking about resurrection. But the death of the Lord Jesus Christ removed this barrier. In Galatians 2.16 it says that by works of the law, no flesh will be made righteous. That includes Jewish flesh. That includes flesh that lived while we were under law. So positional righteousness was never by law. But experiential imparted righteousness was. If you lived in the Old Testament, you couldn't just set aside Moses' law. If you wanted to live righteously, you would be living righteously by keeping the law. 
one other place, and uh, we hasten to show that connection as to righteousness from law being removed. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, For He is our peace, the one having made the both one, and having destroyed the partition wall of the fence, having nullified in His flesh the antagonism. It identifies that antagonism. The law of the commandments in ordinances so that he might create in himself the two for one new man, making peace, and that he might reconcile the both to God in one body through the cross in himself, putting to death the antagonism. The big breach between Jew and Gentile was one kept law and the other one didn't. When that was a total failure for righteousness... Jesus Christ died for all of our failures of law and thereby nullified law as a way of having experiential righteousness in time. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ removed law righteousness. Grace to you in peace. I'm sharing on the broken barrier of futility. And the text is from 1 Peter chapter number 1, verse 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct or your futility of mind or your worthless lifestyle. Some other versions there. But it said that were received by tradition from your fathers. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. How many know that Jesus was a perfect sacrifice? How many know that we were born into this world, but we had corruption in our blood? But Jesus' blood was absolutely perfect. It was without corruption. Therefore, he qualified to be the sacrifice for us. Now, one of the things you might have realized that once you were born again, the price has already been paid for everything that we receive. Jesus did that with his life. He did that at the cross. But how many know we still have to apply some of that? And one of the things that happens with the futility of our minds that we have been redeemed from is that we have a process of renewing our minds upon the truth of God's Word. We must take the Word of God. He left us some tools, number one being His Word, number two being the Spirit of God that has been given to each one of us that have received Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior to guide us into all truth. I find this interesting because what it said here in this verse In verse number 18, it said that this aimless futility was received by traditions from our fathers. You know, that's what Jesus had a hard time with the religious leaders of his day. It's not that traditions are wrong all the time. It's not that they're bad. It's whenever you take a tradition and make it more important than God's word. That's that's when we have the problem. Let me me give you a couple examples. Some of you, you're working with people. You have neighbors and friends. How many know they're watching movies and building their doctrines upon, you know, the recent movie, Noah. People are believing what that is saying. People are reading things on the Internet. Of course, it's true if it's on the Internet, I'm sure. And they know that. There, you know, years ago, there was a movie, the, the, the Last Temptation of Christ. We got people coming into work and saying, did, did you know? Did I know what? That Jesus had an affair. And I'm like, what? Where did you get that from? Oh, it's in the movie. But wait a minute, that's not what the Word of God says. And one of the things that we've learned when people come to us is we don't give them our opinion. People come and they'll say to my wife and I, what do you think about such and such? And we always say, well, that doesn't matter what we think. What does the Word say? Always point people to the Word of God. And see, one of the things that we find, even and I, and I don't want to knock a lot of things here, and I'm not going to do that tonight, but, you know, veggie tales, and I'm all for them. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not preaching against veggie tales. I think there's great principles, but how many know it's not always the Word of God? They're not always biblically accurate. I think they have great principles. I think they're good tools to train up children, but we need to be careful and make sure that we're not allowing traditions to be more important than God's Word. How many have traditions at home? We're going to be celebrating Resurrection Sunday, and we have a special meals and things that we do. One of the things that I grew up doing in, uh, in our family is we always celebrated Christmas. 
and, and we just we got into that. You know, we, we did put the tree up and put the lights up and the decorations and exchange gifts. And it was a time that we chose to, uh, to, to recognize and celebrate the birth of Christ whenever he came to this world. Well, one of the things that we had growing up was a, was a manger scene. How many, how many had manger scenes? We, we had them in our home. We had, we had them in our church. We still have them, still put them up today. And, uh, and in the manger scene, they were kind of typical. We have a little stable, maybe some hay in it. And, and always they had a little baby in there representing Jesus and the mother Mary and Joseph and a few angels, maybe an angel on top or a light or a star, and then uh, a few shepherds and maybe some animals. But in every manger scene that I've seen and still have, there were these three older gentlemen that were there. How many remember them? Those were the, uh, the three wise men. You remember the three wise men? Some of you probably know their names. He didn't get out of the Word of God, though. The interesting thing about these three wise men is they weren't there that night. That, it's not biblical. It's a tradition of man. Now, it's kind of trivial, I know, and we still put the, we still put the manger scene up, and we still put those figures up uh, and, and have them bring the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we sing the hymn, We Three Kings of Orion Ar. But let me tell you this. In the Word of God, they weren't there. They weren't there the night that Jesus was born. They came later, many months later. They didn't come to the manger. They came to the house. And it never tells us there, there were three of them. That's a tradition. It's a tradition of man. I'm not saying it's a bad tradition. I think that the reason that we use three is because there were three gifts. It kind of made sense and it kind of, you know, made it logical to do that. I'm just giving you an example. It's very trivial, I understand. But I'm giving you an example of how traditions can frame our mindset and put it even over God's word. And so I had to start questioning even myself, and I think I would challenge you to do that too. How many other things have we grown up believing that were traditions that maybe weren't God's word? You know, I, I want to challenge you like Paul did with the Bereans to search the scriptures to see if they're true. There isn't a pastor here tonight that I know that would not be all for you, whatever they preach, go to the word of God and make sure it lines up. Go to the Word of God and make sure God has given us that. Jesus paid the price to redeem us from that futility. But we must make the effort to go into the Word of God and renew our mind upon the truth. Amen? And to take a look at that and to live our lives with purpose, not futility. To have a purpose and be guided and led by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit who's been given to us to guide us into all truth. Amen? Thank you. Good evening, everyone. I want you all to know that you are witnessing a miracle tonight. We've got seven preachers that are sticking to seven minutes. <laughs> so let's put it this way. It's probably more like seven miracles than it is one. But at any rate, my task tonight is to speak about broken barrier number four, which is that of separation. And I think it's important that we understand exactly what that really boils down to. And I want to read in your hearing from the book of Colossians, chapter number 1, verses 21 and 22. I'm reading from the New King James. It reads as follows, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So we're going to talk about the, the barrier of separation and, and what God really is doing in that and how Jesus Christ actually overcame that barrier and, and does that for us. But I think if we were to look at a key word in that particular passage, and it's a word that's repeated in the New Testament a number of times, particularly in the book of Second Corinthians, the word is reconciliation. When you talk about reconciliation, there's something that we have to understand. First of all, when it comes to the issue of reconciliation, the very concept of being reconciled suggests that we have to go back to something that we came out of. I know in California, I don't know about in Pennsylvania, but in California, you can get a divorce because of irreconcilable differences. I don't know, can you get that in Pennsylvania? I've never been divorced, I can't afford it. Okay. But I, I understand that 
there is something called irreconcilable differences in the West Coast where you can get a divorce. And that suggests that once we were getting along very well, and now all of a sudden we can no longer get along. And so we have irreconcilable differences. And the very word reconciliation or to be reconciled means to go back to something the way it originally was. And so when we read there in the scriptures where Jesus Christ came for us to be reconciled to God, it's first important that we understand what we need to go back to. What did we come out of? Well, the original reconciliation was meant for us to return to the state in which God had a relationship with Adam. And let's think about what God's relationship with Adam was. You know, we, we have the, I, I appreciate what Pastor Scott was talking about. You know, we have these traditions in our minds and these movies and these ideas and images. What is it, you know, you get a picture of Eden and you see, you know, people just jumping around with leaves around them and all that kind of thing. But what was God's relationship with Adam really like? The scripture says to us that God and Adam were so close that God sat Adam down one day and walked his entire creation in front of him and said to him, whatever you call these things is what they're going to be called. Meaning that I don't know how many of us parents would allow someone outside of our very household to name our children. Think about it. You have created something and you're going to let just any random person say, well, let's call this kid John. You're not going to do that and I'm not going to do that. And so the idea of someone being close enough to me to be able to name my creation says to me that we're very close. And it also says in Genesis that when Adam sinned, even after he sinned, the Bible says to us that Adam could hear God's footsteps walking in the garden. That says to me that they were extremely close. The relationship they had was a, com a complete bond and a complete, very close sharing of time and energy and, and, and intimacy, if you will. And so as a result of that, when God says to us in the New Testament that Jesus Christ came to reconcile us, to bring us back, he's trying to get us to understand that we have a very, very intimate relationship with God. And I dare say, may I, that... In a great way, we're not taking advantage of it. Yes, we want the blessings of God. Yes, we want the, 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 the God to shine down upon us and, and to smile on us and to heal us and, and to bless us, prosper us and all those kinds of things. But when it comes to an intimate relationship with God, so much so that even when I mess up, I can hear him speaking to me at that very moment. That's the kind of close relationship that we are supposed to have with God. When Adam messed up, God was right there. And he was listening and could hear God. And the scripture says when he heard God walking through the forest, that immediately him and Eve got together and sewed their little uh, leaves together and made the first, you know, mini skirts and, uh, uh, you know, tiny briefs and speedos and everything else. But the idea was that their relationship was so close and intimate that really Adam could not get away from God. And the, at the end of the day, the only way that Adam really got away from God was as a result of him not really repenting the way that he should have and God actually having to throw him out of Eden. But in the very beginning, what we have to understand is that God came to us in Jesus to be reconciled back to that very relationship. And so our jobs today as far as my brothers and sisters in this room and throughout all of Christianity, is to basically work, strive, develop, begin to build and work upon the work that Jesus Christ did for us on the cross and say, God, you came, you sent your son so that I can go back to a very close and intimate relationship with you, and I don't want to miss one bit of it. If you want me to work with you in your kingdom, I want to work with you in your kingdom. If you want me to, to love my neighbor as you loved me so that they can feel your love through me, then that's what I want. Intimate relationship. That's what it means to be brought back to our original relationship with God. Our relationship with God and our relationship with each other are really all that it boils down to. The, the, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? And what did Jesus say? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and all of the prophets. Everything that I've ever done, everything I've ever preached, everything I've ever said, all the prophets for 1,000 years that came from Moses all the way up to Zechariah, all the way through, all of them were basically trying to say one thing, love God, love your neighbor. And so I'm saying to us, our job 
is to get back to the original. The original is relationship. It's great to have churches, great to have preachers, great to have programs. It's wonderful to do all the things that we do. Isn't it so Christian? It's just great, isn't it? But the truth of the matter is, at the end of the day, I want to make sure that my relationship with God is just as close as it can possibly be. I want to go back to the original. In the garden. In the garden. And so, my brothers and sisters, I want to leave you with the idea of this. Jesus Christ came, died, rose. There's my timer. And I'll leave you with that. I'll see you next year. No, no. He came, died, and rose for the purpose of reconciliation, taking us back to where it originally was. God bless you. Good evening, everyone. Well, God forbid that we should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're doing tonight. And it's a great, great thing to do. Jesus Christ, in his death, freed us from the barrier of this present evil age. That's what we're going to talk about in the next seven minutes. Four things. What is this present evil age? Why is it evil? What exactly has freed us or delivered us from it? And then a final warning about living as saved people in this present evil age. So what is this present evil age that Galatians 1.4 speaks of? Well, the Scriptures speak of two distinct ages. First, this present evil age that we are now living in. This age is characterized by evil, and it spans from the fall of Adam to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then second, the Scriptures speak of the age to come, which kicks off at the return of Jesus Christ. And that age is characterized not by evil, but by righteousness, because Jesus Christ will set up His kingdom and rule this earth in that age. But we're told that there is a ruling power here and now in this present evil age that holds quite a degree of influence over it. The Bible calls him the God, small g, of this age. And his name is Satan. He's an evil spirit that holds some influence in this age. And what he does is he slithers around in this age seeking to put a trance on people, blinding them from the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's his number one mission. He wants to blind people from seeing the truth the truth of Jesus Christ in His Gospel. 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 4, verse 4 is the first passage we'll look at. And this describes those who have fallen prey to His trance. It says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So this whole thing... This whole thing reminds me of an old Disney movie that many of you have probably seen. It was The Jungle Book. It's been around since, I think, the 60s. And in The Jungle Book, okay, there's this jungle, and there's this boy in the jungle. I think his name's Mowgli or Mowgli. I'm not sure how to say it. But there's also this snake named Ka. And Ka's that serpent that slithers around through the jungle, and he tries to put a trance on Mowgli. You remember his eyes have that spiral swirling, spinning blue and green. And when Mowgli looks into his eyes, he just kind of gets seduced into this stupor and gets sleepy. Well, there's a serpent in the jungle of this present evil age that's slithering around and he's trying to put a spell, a trance of spiritual blindness on all of us. And he might not have these swirling eyes like Ka, the snake, but he's got a lot of other goods that he lays around, a lot of other lures and traps and poisons that he lays around to try to distract us from the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And mostly those lures, those distractions, come in the form of pleasures and riches and cares of this life. And his number one goal with all these things that he strategically places in our path 
is to do just that, to distract us from Jesus Christ. And we read in 2 Corinthians 4 that he's been successful with many people in that. But, but we who believe in Jesus Christ, who have seen the light of the glory of the gospel of his grace, have believed in him, have been freed from this present evil age. And that's what Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 tell us. It says this. And this is how we've been freed. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself. Gave Himself. That's a reference to His death on the cross. Gave Himself for our sins to... And we don't want to overlook that little word too because that's a word expressing His aim. His, his reason, His purpose, His motivation for giving Himself. He gave Himself, why did He give Himself? He gave Himself to deliver us from this present evil age. So Jesus Christ, when He died on the cross and shed His blood, He delivered us from this domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light. And when he died, he broke that spellbinding power of Satan who was seeking to blind us and put us into the trance so that we wouldn't see the gospel of grace, the gospel of that light. But he broke that power when he died. And that power is broken for all who believe the gospel. See, the gospel, as was mentioned earlier, is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The gospel is that good news that God became a man. The eternal God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, became a man because God couldn't die, but God needed to die for our sins, so He became flesh so that He could live a perfect life and die on the cross and shed His blood to deliver us from this present evil age. And then He rose from the dead and He's going to return one day. But he, Satan, the God of this world, will never succeed in putting us in that trance of spiritual darkness forever because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Now, Paul, in Galatians, after pro proclaiming this wonderful truth that we've been delivered from this present evil age, gives a warning to the Galatians. Later on in chapter 4, he says... This He says in chapter 4, verse 9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world whose slaves you want to be once more? See, even though we've been delivered from this present evil age, even though this present evil age cannot influence us to be separated eternally from the grace of God anymore. It cannot sever our relationship with Jesus Christ. It can hinder our fellowship with Him while we're here. He's delivered us. He's rescued us. He's saved us from its power. But it can, if we allow it, if we do what the Galatians did, hinder our fellowship with Him. So Paul gives this warning, and I want to close for us with this warning as well. We cannot re-enslave ourselves to this present evil age or any of the things in it. And one of the ways that Satan still tries to do that to us is to make us believe his lies. So, for example, many of us, though we're saved and though we've been delivered from this present evil age, many of us who are saved living in it still might have some area of, of sin, for example, in your life that you feel like you will never get victory over that area of sin. This is just something that you're going to struggle with for the rest of your life. And you feel that way because Satan is lying to you and telling you that. The Scriptures say that we no longer have to be slaves of sin. And if we've put ourselves back into its slavery, we did that voluntarily. But God, as a man, Jesus Christ, died to deliver us not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin in our lives. And so we, we have the victor, Jesus Christ, living in us. And greater is He that is in us 
than he that is in the world. Therefore, you and I can have victory over the power of sin in this present evil age. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're struggling to believe that, I encourage you to get to know the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. All you've got to do is get to know him better. And the more you know the truth, the more you will be set free. Let's pray and ask him to do this for us. Father, whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Help us all to realize, to, to really experience the freedom that we have because of Jesus Christ's death in this present evil age. And then to live out that experience by overcoming the sins that have kept us enslaved for so long. Lord, we can do that because you died to give us the power to overcome these sins. We thank you, Jesus, for being our deliverer and our redeemer. In your powerful name we ask. Amen. Good evening. I'd like to start with just reading some scripture. In 1 Corinthians, at the end of 1 Corinthians and going into chapter 2, it says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Good evening, Church of Indiana. I have the privilege to share with you that Jesus has destroyed death. Death is a great enemy of all humanity. But it was not always the case. God lovingly and graciously told us and warned us. Listen, God said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Satan comes along and he says, Did God really say that? You will not surely die. That's not true. So Adam and Eve, believing the lie of Satan, ate. And they died. They died spiritually, and they died physically. And ever since then, we've all felt the effects of death. Every one of us sitting here has been touched by death, whether you know it or not. And if you think you have not, you will, if you live long enough. It has affected everyone. But there is good news. There is good news. God promised, even in Genesis 3, He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head, and he, and you shall bruise his heel. We see that God has a good plan from the beginning. We see that God is saying that, Satan, you will bruise Christ's heel by causing him to suffer on the cross. That's why we're here. But Jesus will deal you a death blow, Satan. He will crush your head. That's the good news. That's what happened at the cross. That's why we're here tonight. That is the good news. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse 9. He says this, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He might taste death for everyone. See, Jesus lowers himself. He humbles himself and Jesus is crowned with glory and He's crowned with honor because of the suffering of death. Jesus willingly tastes death for everyone. 
That's how far he would lower himself. That's what he was willing to do. There is no depth of love that God's love doesn't reach. And he's willing to do that. And the author of life takes on death at the cross. He is the death destroyer. He is the head crusher that was promised in Genesis chapter 3. Listen as the writer in Hebrews continues. As he continues in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. He says, since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood. Or you could say, since we are human. He he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. All of humanity, every one of us have been subject to lifelong slavery because of the fear of death. Just look at the extent we're willing to go. Pick up a newspaper. Pick up anything. We will do anything to avoid this. We will eat roots. We will exercise. And I have nothing against, well, maybe I do, (laughs) against exercise. But i got to tell you, the reason we do that is because we know that death is coming for us and we fear it. And we've we've been absolutely scared of death because we know that in one sense, no one escapes this thing alive. But, but, the beauty of the Gospel of Jesus is that He tasted death for us in order that we might be liberated from this fear to enjoy Him. Because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and by getting up from the grave, death is dead. Death is dead. Good Friday is all about death. Yet, it is the death of Jesus, yes, but through His death, it is the death of death. It's, it's gone. For the believer, for those who are in Christ Jesus, Jesus destroyed Satan, destroyed sin, destroyed death on the cross through His death. That is good news. And, and church, I hope, I hope that you rest in that fact. You know, the writer of John says that you will never taste death. You will never see death. Yes, your body will die, but you will go to be present with the Lord. That's the good news. So now, those who are in Christ, we can say with boldness, death is swallowed up in victory. It's swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because it's been defanged. It's gone. Why? Because our victor, Jesus. That's why we're here tonight. It is all about Jesus. He is amazing. We come here to worship Him, to thank Him, to praise Him, for everything He accomplished on the cross. And we stand here tonight. And we do not need to fear death. If you fear death, it's because of one of two things. Either A, you have not been reconciled back to God. You're not born again. Or it's because your total view of this glorious truth needs to be brought back into view of the cross. So church, let me encourage you. Don't fear death. Because Jesus tasted death that we may not. Hi, church. Okay. Um, I've been given a task to talk a little bit on this passage here. It's Hebrews 10. Um, 19 to 23. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Amen. 
Now, being the last guy, there's no one else coming after me, so I can just keep going. <clears throat> no, no, I'm not going to do that. All right. F- first thing, it's this part of Scripture starts off with their four brothers. And my dad always taught me when reading the Bible, he says, when you see therefore, find out why the therefore is therefore. So you've got to go back a bit. And I think the one phrase that um, explains this well is Hebrews 10.10. 10. It says, By that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Can you say that with me? Once for all. Pastor Timothy was talking about a law righteousness that people were... I mean, it, it, it is talking about that area. Okay, it's in that zip code of people talking about, you know, what, what comes for us. Do we need to have this sort of a consecration or that kind? Or do, what do we need to do? Is it the first covenant or the second covenant? And here he takes some time to explain that. It's not a law righteousness. It is a righteousness through faith. Faith in what? In the once for all. In the once for all sacrifice that Jesus made. So when we come to this barrier right here, inaccessibility, okay, when you read a passage like that, I mean, you're like, how can I ever get to this new and living way open for us through the curtain? You need to have some sort of a context for what they're talking about here in the tabernacle. He has opened a way into the presence of God. You're no longer someone coming here singing your songs, hoping God can hear you on the other side. Okay? You are coming through. There were gates that you entered in through. You brought a sacrifice because you had to. And then after that, there was a washing. And then after that, you go into the holy place where there was an offering of worship again. There was showbread. There was incense. And there was... The lamb stand, and then right deep within is the dark room where it was blackout. The only thing that lit the holiest place was the presence of God Himself. And in that place, you met with God. And this was something that wasn't, no one was allowed to go there. Once a year, a priest would go in there. And then there would be bells on, his, on the end of his robe just in case he was struck dead. Someone could hear that it, the bell stopped ringing and there was a rope tied to his leg and they would pull him out. I kid you not. Okay, this is what we're talking about. And in the midst of all this fear of, I don't know if I can go and meet the big man or the big guy in modern context of inaccessibility, Could you go up and meet the CEO of Apple or Microsoft? If you were an employee, a first-year intern who has just come in, do you even think of meeting the big guy? No. That was the kind of mindset, I am so far removed, I'm not even going to try. And he says, you've been brought near. The separation that we had from God through sin has been taken away. Remember when we talked about reconciliation? Reverend Jenkins talked about that very well. He said, we need to remember what are we being reconciled to? The design that God had for us was not just pals. It wasn't just someone who got their golden ticket into heaven. It was someone who he shared his heart with. Okay, so I would like to present to you that today God calls you a child, a son, a daughter. You are no longer employee number 9,658. You don't punch in and then hope at some point you will get to see the big guy walk in the corridor. He says, you have direct access to me. Okay? And I just want to read from, this is a passage of scripture we, um, I think it was Pastor Dave who, who read that right up front in Ephesians. 
Remember that you at one time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. Say brought near. You're brought near. Now, I don't know about you, how many people do you actually bring very close into your house? Just like that whole thing about naming the animals. It's not just someone he says, I really know you, I know you well now because of what Jesus has done. He says, I see you just as I see Jesus. Hear me again. He sees you just as he sees Jesus. Are you in Christ? Yes? Okay, well, we, we're not sure. Let's just read. Ephesians, Ephesians 1. Alright, just in case you think I'm making this up. Ephesians 1. It says in verse 5, He predestined us for adoption as... That is what you are, not Christians. Because very many of us are happy to play the Christian. But what we have been called to goes way past Christian to being called son. You and I are not employee number 9,568. We are son. And he says this, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, in, with which he has blessed us in the beloved Son. In his beloved Son, he has blessed us in him. And 2 Corinthians, 15, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17 talks about the new creation, who is in Christ. That is your position. So you, are, you and I are seen just like how he would see Jesus. When he sees Greg, when he sees Sean, when he sees each one of us here, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see all the things that you think are actually reasons why you should really be inaccessible to him. That's the problem. Many people come into church trying to get their act cleaned up before God sees them. The problem is he saw you already. And he says, I've already made a way. And that is the gospel. That he has made a way past everything that you can stand up and say, but you don't know me. He says, I do. Because I already met you. I formed you. I made you. Okay? So in closing, I just want to say this. You are no longer someone with the employee syndrome. You're someone with a birthright, with sonship. See what kind of love, 1 John 3 says, the, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason the, why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know Him. The key is knowing Him. That is always the key to eternal life. This is eternal life, John 17, 3. That they might know you. So when you know God, you are a child of God. And if you are a child of God, he says, come, draw near with confidence. So now when I say a new and living way through the curtain into the holiest places, you're no longer seeing something religious, but you're seeing your dad calling you, come. You're seeing your dad say, come sit a while, let me share my heart with you. And all this is through Jesus. Amen. What a good night to hear all these incredible realities for all of us who have trusted in Christ. And as we sang that final song, we sang about our call to war as believers in Jesus, to share this good news with those who don't yet know. And I 
was reminded of the story in the book of Mark when the man is freed from demon possession and he wants to follow Jesus. Here's what Jesus said to him, and I believe what the Lord would say to us with this fresh reminder of all that we have in Christ. Jesus Christ said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. And the man went away, and he began to proclaim in the ten cities how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for resisting temptation in every way, for being beaten and mocked and spit on and ridiculed, for being credited with our sins upon you, for taking the physical punishment, for receiving the wrath of God upon yourself that we all deserve. Lord, you have broken so many barriers that only you could break. And Lord, we we praise you for that. We thank you for that. And Lord, it is our heart's desire that many more men, women, and children in this region would come to know this good news. Lord, would you fill us with your spirit once again as we leave tonight. And Lord, may we be like this man who went and told all that the Lord has done for us. Lord, we love you, and we ask all this in your name. Amen.